Okay. Again, we need to situate ourselves in the series. I was going to come up with a creative intro, but I don't got one today. So I apologize. But what I do have is just a, a brief um, situating of the spheres, as I'll call it. Um, we are dropping into Ephesians. We covered all of Ephesians 4 and half of Ephesians 5 in one sermon. What, what do you know? And we need to be reminded of the context. First, in our last message, Ephesians 4, as a summary, is about the grand mission of God's kingdom, which will be accomplished through the church and in the church. Um, that is his body on earth through kingdom work. But I have likened this project of God, of his initiative and his motivation to the building of a cathedral. It's ultimately his, but includes us and our children over the long haul. We must recognize that here in this chapter four that we were just in, deals with the church sphere, um, both local and, and global in all of its parts, not just in the walls on the Lord's day, but, but outside wherever we might find ourselves. And there's this uh, beautiful balance of keeping in mind the big picture of God's mission, while at the same time emphasizing the individual Christian life uh, and doctrine that we must all have and, and strive for the upbuilding and uh, also interpersonal church relations, uh, whether they exist here among us right now or they are out in the world. It's, it's all foc- focused on this church sphere. Uh, but now as we hop into chapter 5, Paul's going to transition at this point and uh, continue to apply all the teaching in chapters 1 through 3 to the home sphere. He's going he's gonna to move. Uh, they're included and they're intermingled, but he is going to move into a distinctly different section, namely the home sphere. <clears throat> we saw this in Acts a little bit where I have categorized, just according to standard reform terminology, something called sphere sovereignty. Just as a reminder, we see that God has authorized three different spheres in, in the world to operate. They're not subservient or above one another. They're equal, and they are these three. First, the societal sphere or the societal governments. You see that in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 3, that there is an authorized um, set of governing authorities above us in, in, a, in a societal level. And then there's also the ecclesial government. You have church government, that is, and 1 Timothy and Titus, that is the officers of the church pastors and deacons, and then you also have the government of the household, which is what we find ourselves in in chapter 5 and 6. So three spheres, one Lord, and there's only two kingdoms. So let us think about the structure um, of the home uh, in light of what we've seen so far and... um, my goal today is I'm trying to pull the, the material that you've already heard into what we've said and make sure it's really clear so we know how the home fits in light of the bigger structure. And some of you who are very keen and listening know that we have been talking about covenants because God relates to humanity in no other way but through covenants. And so we saw that in the very beginning of the Bible, um, God enters into covenantal relationship with mankind through Adam, which we'll get to in a second. But covenants, again, is a strange word for us because we don't use it anymore. We still, in this church, are going to use it in marriage, marriage covenant, Uh, but in the day, Everywhere you would have covenants 
all over between man and man, uh, though we've been focused on the ones between God and man. Uh, but you should know that even in our church covenant, uh, which we've adopted some time, time back, uh, there is the church sphere in paragraph two. There's the individual covenant we have with God. So our covenant we have together is, is contained in the whole, but the covenant we agree to uh, consists in acknowledging our covenant here as a church, our individual covenant with God through our participation in the Lord's Supper and baptism, as well as um, the home sphere in chapter 3 about maintaining family and personal devotions and to educate our children in the Christian faith. The, the covenant uh, is, uh, is throughout all of the Bible. It's, it's pervasive. It's like the it's like fish in the sea. It's something that if you're not conscious of it, it's, it's so um, all-encompassing that you might, you might miss it. You might ask a fish, uh, is the water cold? And he's like, what, what water? Uh, that's kind of how covenant is in the Bible. It is everywhere. And if we see it clearly, we understand better about how we are to re- relate to one another, to Christ and the world. Now, let us just begin by looking now in our text in verse 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What I want to focus on first is is this phrase, Christ is the head of the church. Now, there's obviously parallels here, which we see head and body parallels. uh, But we also need to understand the terminology of head. It doesn't just refer to the thing you got on your shoulders. Really, the idea is this covenantal relationship, which is central to understanding the gospel. You'll notice that Christ is the head of the church, not Adam. That's where we began in the Bible. Adam is the head of all humanity. We are in Genesis. We saw in Genesis that God, by a special act of providence, (coughs) enters into a formal covenant relationship with Adam as the head of humanity, all of which we are his body, as it were. And through that, the requirement was that by grace through faith, he would persevere in perfect obedience. We all know, since we're all sinners, that Adam did not complete this task. He tragically failed and We all sinned in him. He actually uh, represented us well. He sinned just like you sinned. He's a very good representative of us in the garden. But we praise God for what we saw in the beginning is that what was promised even to the first two people who ever existed, Adam and Eve, is that God promised them a covenant of grace. That is, that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent who in the fullness of time is to be known to us as Jesus Christ, the Lord. Jesus has become the head of all of God's redeemed people. Not all of humanity, but all of the redeemed people of God. There is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved, said Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4. We should see that every individual Christian and the whole of the church is under a new and living head. We are no longer under suffering, languishing under Adam's headship, under covenant in that way, because we would receive from Adam all that he can give to us, which is only death since the wages of sin is death. We have been entered into a new covenant that is 
in Christ Jesus. He is the noble redeemer. He has a covenantal people and they will receive the wages of his life and the cleansing of his sacrificial death on their behalf. This is the only way life is had and found. So this is the big structure. All of humanity fits under this covenant in Adam where they will by perish and die or they will enter in by faith and by the grace of God through faith into the new covenant such that they might be saved and redeemed. Every one of us should not feel left out since this includes every Christian in every station of life that you find yourself in. This is covenantal union with Christ Jesus. So although this series is focused on the household, husbands and wives, some of you at this time do not find yourself with that in that particular situation. Nonetheless, this includes all of us. Um, All of us as individual Christians belong to a household. That is the household of the living God. All of us, whether we have uh, many in our home right now or not, all have a crown to rule with Christ in his kingdom today and have an anointing to speak the truth of the gospel. All of us are included in this grand greatest covenant, which God has inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Um, Do not despise the particular situation you find yourself in or the providence that you are in in your life, whether you have a full or an empty house at this point. Uh, This is God's purposes for your good, and you are still a part of his major work, as we've seen in Ephesians 4, the grand covenant of redemption. But with that said, and me setting up the framework, I want to now jump into a, a few other things that we should see before we look at specific functions of husband and wife in marriage. <clears throat> What's significant about marriage within this larger covenantal structure of all the universe. Uh, That's what I'm going to drive at. But specifically, what we see here in verse 23, if you look at it, says the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Although Paul tackles the wife's duties first, It's significant, it's very significant, and lots of people miss this, that her duties in marriage are not arbitrarily given, but rather they are based upon a concrete reality of Christ as head and husband. They're based upon objective realities. Christ, who is a man, and his head and husband. The Bible clearly teaches that husbands can only be men, no matter what some perverse tranny might tell you. Husbands are men. Headship is reserved for men. It is not a function that can be transferred because it's based upon maleness. So it cannot be shifted. Men are responsible, as it were, as the governmental head of the wife and the home. They are to uh, take up rulership and ultimate decision making and all the resultant effects of good or bad headship. Uh, That is what we'll get into later. It just must be said that headship is a man's based upon his created nature, not just because, oh, I think I'm going to do this. Secondly, women, obviously, as it is corresponding to this, is, is likened not to Christ, but to the faithful church. They are, are representatives in the marriage of the bride of Christ. Now, all of us, of course, represent Christ to the world. 
That is true. But there is a specific intention in marriage such that the wife has a role that is not interchangeable with the man's since it itself is rooted in being a bride. That is being a woman. So this role of submission is because God has created them male and female and corresponding functions. Now, I must also say, gloriously, what we see here throughout the whole passage, and we'll read the whole thing in just a minute again, but marriage from this perspective, from God's perspective, is a living, breathing representation of the gospel. It's amazing. You know, it's it's always blown my mind that in time, what we see actually God establishing in history as marriage is first. It's the very first institution. However, from this perspective, what was first in God's ordination in his mind is the gospel, a redeemed bride for Christ Jesus. And marriage is a picture that points to that, though in history it comes way later. Amazing reality that we can live into. And here, we are, the, as married folks, representatives of this picture of the gospel. And let me just exhort you and say, when we embrace the, the laws that are laid down for men or for women here, our homes, our husband and wife families or kids, if, if you have those in the home, is a kind of micro, microcosm that is a display of the glory of God's order in redeemed humanity. Let, let me just say it again. It, it is when we embrace this and we live it out in our homes, they become a microcosm of the new humanity and the order that is in Christ now and forever. When the world passes away, the glory of this order continues on. It is, a, it is a taste of the kingdom of God, a potent taste at that. It is the savor of what the new heavens and the new earth will be fully like when it's lived out accordingly. It's hard to compare how gloriously beautiful it is. And I will say that when marriages are saturated thoroughly in an environment that portrays the gospel in this way, um, and we and our families get to taste the glories of the kingdom of God, it transforms us radically over time and, and makes the kingdom of Satan and all of the trinkets that the evil one or our own sinful heart might find as its fancy become increasingly repugnant and distasteful and undesirable. That's what we want here in the long term. We want marriages and uh, with or without children at this particular point to be a, 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 an experience of the full kingdom of God in your home. That's, that's what it's created for. So, Now that we've looked a little bit at some central issues, let us talk about the functions of marriage. This will be hard a little bit for all of us, I think, because uh, these standards are, are extremely high. You'll notice that in a wife's and a husband's, they're higher than you. Even in the church, it's about the spotless bride that is the fully faithful bride of Christ. So women, you don't have any, uh, any lower standard than a man, whether it be Christ or the, or, or the church. Here, um, all of it shames us. And so what we're going to do is focus on positively what, what the wife's submission is, a wife and her submission. Secondly, we're going to tackle some common sins related to wives um, and then we're going to repeat the process and look at a man and his headship and then uh, common sins that relate to the man. And if I get any farther, farther than that, I would be surprised. So that's where we're going in the rest of the sermon here. So first, 
the functions within a marriage, specifically a wife's submission. The focus of Paul by the Holy Spirit says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, that is, as to Christ. He teaches that obedience to Christ is indirectly direct. Women, you must recognize that Christ is in your home through your husband's representation. Therefore, what Christ or what is done to Christ or the image-bearing man who bears the image of Christ is done to Christ himself. Whatever is done to a husband, though to our eyes it appears indirectly related to Jesus, is actually directly at Jesus. Since we're acting toward him in all of what we do towards our husbands or or what you do towards your husbands, whether for good or for ill. I believe that a conscious embrace of this reality would alter probably significantly your attitudes and thoughts and actions towards your husband, would it not? Secondly, since marriage is about more than you two in the room, it's actually about the greater reality of Christ and the gospel, it really does matter what happens behind closed doors, how you treat one another regardless of who's watching. And so true submission, whether anybody else sees or just your husband or just your kids or grandkids or whoever, true submission to your husband um, is to Christ and in this marital way, it is glorious. Now say it again. Submission from a wife is glorious. I say it a third time. It's glorious. No matter who's watching, it is wonderful. And so if submission is this sweet aroma of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church on display within the marriage, um, then we should get a waft of what is not pleasing, the stench of worldliness in a marriage from a wife. So we will cover some of your sins. The relationship becomes first very ugly and distorted when wives are insubordinate. Christ is to have full allegiance and full obedience from his bride. That's what he requires of all of us. And so any lawful command of a husband should be promptly heeded if it conforms to the will of God and or doesn't contradict it. It should not be rejected, especially very easily from you. Secondly, closely tied to this is a word that I ran across. I'm like, that's a good word. I'm going to use it. Contumacus. (laughs) Contumacious, excuse me. Contumacious. It means stubbornly rebellious. So insubordination is rebellion, but stubbornly rebellious. A wife must cultivate a tender heart to the governance of her husband in the home. It it, it is much unbecoming for a wife to resemble a wild mare that needs to be curbed with a bit and bridle. It's not glorious. In fact, those who are strongly resistant to the will of their husband or the reasoning of their husband look much more like Israel who fell in the wilderness than the spotless bride of Christ of whom are all faithful or as Sarah was commended for her faith. Thirdly, disrespect. It it matters really not whether your husband is the sharpest tool in the shed. He's the most intelligent person on the block. Or his, he's the godliest person. That, that is inconsequential. The office that God has given him itself is to be held in esteem. And therefore you're to esteem him as though he wears a crown in your home. To give disrespect and to not give proper honor to the husband is to undermine the whole task of displaying the gospel in the home. The whole task. Fourthly, Critical record keeping. Critical record keepers. Often, wives dishonor husbands by belittling them, 
comparing them to others and then making sure that he knows all the failures that he's committed that you've documented in your journal. And you will be free to bring it out next time and add a tally to the amount of failure that he has this time. Even threatening to give him less honor than you did before and saying all sorts of things uh, in that regard. Um, Regardless of how much effort he puts out or the progress that he's made in the last two, three years. Uh, Do not pull out the past and hold it against him if he's repented of it. Uh, Just encourage him to continue on in the way he's going. Because guaranteed, godly men make progress. Loudmouth mocker. You've seen these women. Uh, What a sight when you see a, a defeated man because he's been beat down over and over again in a marriage and has been mocked, even suffering public humiliation with his wife talking about how poor her husband is in front of other people, or even in backdoor gossip sessions with the other church ladies. Uh, This is grotesquely sinful. Lastly, do not be uh, caught into domineering through manipulation, whether consistent prodding, we call that nagging. Don't do that. That's sinful. Um, Do not be a manipulator or a Jezebel. You may not be, over to, be able to overpower your husband, but you can sure make him feel guilty and get him to do what you want him to do or throw an adult ten- temper tantrum or give him the cold shoulder for the next three days so that he might do what you want him to do. <laughs> your helping should not tell your husband that he can't do what God's called him to do. That's usurping authority. Be a helper. Support him, encourage him, and let him have the reins. Don't take him over. Exhortation. Wives, be submissive in the way that shows that you trust the providence of God. That God gave you that husband, and it's for your good. He has joined you together for his glory, that you might put the gospel on display. Show forth that glory in respectful, obedient, helping, and a quiet disposition. You are to put on the beautiful virtues of a wife and live into the reality of Christ's submissive bride. Uh, Live into that glory and you will be a very happy, happy woman. Secondly, uh, a man's headship. Men, what does the Holy Spirit tell us is the function of of our headship over our wife in the home. That's where we're going. And I want to do this in in three headings. And I'll just say them real quick. Sacrificial love, verse 25. Incarnational love, verse 28 through 33. And pastoral love, 26 and 27. I'm going to cover all those three. And then I am going to make you feel really bad by showing all of your sins as well. Because I'd like to fulfill 2 Timothy 3, 16 and following, that correction and and bringing to light sinfulness is the way that God actually helps us do what he positively commands us to do. That we would turn in repentance even today and, and live for new obedience. So men, first we see in verse 25, I'm going to read the whole section, but I want you to keep your ears open for 25, which is the first place we're going to go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quote from Genesis. Verse 
This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So firstly, sacrificial love. This is maybe the most apparent that we all really know. This is verse 25. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and these words, gave himself up for her. And because it's followed by sanctification, we naturally and normally go to his death. This is the way that God, through Christ, cleanses us from our sin. And this is what is in view. The the most obvious way is Christ's sacrificial death for his bride. And most obviously, husbands cannot offer up their bodies sacrificially in this way. But the pattern, nonetheless, is what is commended. You, you will not save your wife by these things, but you will uh, participate in her salvation, in, in her sanctification in this way. The, the pattern is the man ought to be willing to lay down his life to provide for all of her needs. There must exist a type of abandon, a principled abandon that puts body, mind, and heart on the line. A good head, a good head bleeds and even dies to advance the good of his wife spiritually and physically and in any other conceivable way. It must be said that no man is able to exhaust the full extent of sacrificial love that we see in Christ. But we should also say that it's not even approachable by us as men, since we are so selfish as people, uh, that we would even get close unless we begin with first things first. That is a red hot passion and fervency for Christ and his gospel in all things. If you have anything less than that, if you're striving for just respectability and, you know, a general uh, Christian disposition and not full-fledged, full-throated, flaming Christianity, however you want to say it, on fire for the things of Jesus, you will not lay down your life for her whatsoever. It, it doesn't get any higher than Jesus's example to die for people who don't deserve it and to do it out of great mercy. That is why Paul in Romans 12 says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to the church generally, but in the marriage, go low and die to yourself daily. Secondly, there's incarnational love. This, this is attached together in 28 and following. And the picture that's used is, is twofold, right? Head and body, that's together. Um, and, and also husband and wife becoming one body. And, and that mystery pointed forward to Christ and the church. So <clears throat> I'll say it this way in a, in a phrase, hopefully that'll keep your attention Christ not only died for his wife, but he lived for her. Is that, is that different to you? I, I, it's different to me. Christ didn't just die for her. He also lived, he came and lived for her. The mystery of the incarnation really does rest here, that the eternal son of God took on true humanity, flesh, bone, a reasonable soul, so that he might be completely joined to his bride, the church. He might be completely joined to humanity. In, in other words, he came to unite himself to all of God's people such that he might give all of himself to her. Striking. And oh, in, in, in this union is exactly how, you read Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, he came to Uh, Through this union, he lavishes upon us all the grace that is in him, and he might give every blessing that is in Christ to you by becoming one with you in 
his life, death, resurrection. But his incarnation is proof that he uh, is one body with us. And therefore, he cares for us as his very own flesh. This is what I mean by incarnational love. A, A man is to withhold nothing from his wife, but extend everything he has uh, for the benefit of our wives. Everything that is mine is, is yours and yours is mine. When a man looks upon his wife, he's looking upon himself. He ought to cherish her as though there's really no distinction between them in the way that I'm using that. His needs or her needs are his needs and everything is to be mutual and shared. She is a co-heir of the grace of life, as Peter says. Second, that's the second heading. The third one is there's a, a, a husband needs to be a pastor in his home. There's a pastoral kind of love that a husband is to give. And, and this is really what I want to emphasize because I think it's uh, significantly important. I think we get the other two. This one we may get a little bit less, but I want to elevate Verse 26 and 27, although it's all about Christ, is intended to give men principles by which you are to live in relation to your wife. Verse 26 says, uh, in giving himself up, he did so, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be that she might be holy and without blemish i'm going to call this pastoral love Um, the reason um, though none of us can effectually sanctify our wives can't just like zap her and she's grown a little bit in this way or that that's that's the work of god nonetheless what we see here is the idea of sanctification in the same way that a pastor gives the words of Christ and the people of Christ receive it and grow and are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So too, the man is responsible to give the word of Christ in his home. He is to speak the word of the gospel in his marital relationship. And and here, in a human way, uh, the wife is sanctified by ordinary means. I find that many Christians have a, a missing category right here, right here. So if you can form this, it'll serve you greatly. And the category is the ordinary means of grace. So we know that all of the grace that comes in sanctification, that that makes us holy, comes from God. But how does it get to us? Well, through our union with Christ, which is spiritually, and also through, specifically through the means of grace. And the Baptist Catechism uh, tells us that the Outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. That is, the redemption that's in Christ comes over to us is through the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. All of which things we're responsible for. But while we do them, they are made effectual by the Holy Spirit so that we might you know, fulfill what scripture says that we are being saved. We're working out our salvation. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. We are being sanctified. And in this way, I find this to be a super helpful and beautiful description because there, this is a very odd way to talk about cleansing, but it's specifically directed at husbands. Normally, when we talk about cleansing, the, really one of the only other times is in uh, uh, Titus 3 when we went out over this is the, the washing of regeneration, uh, something that we're not a part of at all. It's all the work of God. But here he says that Christ, as the, uh, Christ cleansed her with the washing of water with the word. 
It actually gives us a way that we can model Christ in word, uh, which is significant. I, I encourage you to go back and look at um, Jesus washing the disciples' feet and talking about his word, cleansing them in an ongoing way. I don't have time to look at that today, but you could go there in John's gospel. So here, if we're going to use the analogy, this ordinary means of grace by speaking the word to your wife or praying with your wife, participating in the Lord's Supper with your wife, these things, what Paul intimates is that this is our responsibility, the pastoral role. We have a, a cleansing, or she and everybody, but a husband to a wife needs cleansing regularly for all the daily buildup of the dirt of our sins. And a husband's lips, as it were, should be a daily scrub of his wife with a sponge, a purifying bath in the gospel of grace. That's how this is affected in your home. The duty of a man is to intercede both privately and to speak publicly or pray publicly with his uh, spouse or, or in their public setting. When it's you two, there's more than one. That's how I'm using public. Um, you are to be bringing her to the throne of grace by your words, by your speaking the scriptures and praying with her in light of them which is a high task for men. Uh, I've thought this week, though I'm not going to include them here, I'll berate myself some other time. I thought of all the ways that I'm failing to do this, even though I'm, I'm really committed to. <clears throat> so this is a huge challenge for us. Now, the sins of husbands. You wives are waiting for it, right? So now the sins of husbands. This is in order that we might be moved away from our natural tendencies. Our natural tendencies are towards sin. Um, they are of the weakness of the flesh. It is by grace that we see those ongoing things in us that we want to avoid. And so this is in order to secure your receiving of the positive words of scripture here. I have, how many of these do I have? Five. Five of them, husbands. Here we go. Men, you live in a feminist culture. You live, you live in a feminist culture. You really do. Most churches in America are effeminate. They're, they're um, leaning towards girly mannishness. <laughs> if we're going to use an Arnold Schwarzenegger thing. Uh, bunches of girly men. And, and the church teaches men to be uh, boys and here, what you need to be understanding is that <clears throat> true masculinity, as it's here, true headship, is the receiving joyfully of responsibility and not to abdicate that to your wife or a function of the church. You in your home have duties, lots of them, lots of them. You are not able to give that to another. You are her head. No one else is. You are. God has given you a job whereby you take ownership of your home. If it's a mess, it's your mess. You clean it up. It's not her mess. It's yours. It's not the kid's mess. It's yours primarily because you are the head. You're responsible for governing your home and training people how it ought to be going. Men, when trash needs taking out or attending, or the kids need training, or the wife needs shepherding, then you're supposed to smile and joyfully do what's needed for them, physically, spiritually, and otherwise. Uh, men, do not be an excuse-making blamer. What a shame it is when husbands, so many of them, act like boys on a football field where their quarterback's throwing the ball and it bounces off their hands and they blame the quarterback for not throwing a tight enough spiral. You made me drop it. Um, what toll that takes on your wife over years when you fail to take responsibility but want to shift it on your wife. Adam did this. Do not follow in his sinful footsteps. God gave you responsibility. It's not her fault. It's, it's my fault. It's our fault. We are to 
like Christ, take up sins which aren't even ours in the home. That is the message of the gospel. Christ takes on sins that aren't his so that he might deal with them and forgive them. Thirdly, tied to this, um, men, don't be slothful in your duties. Don't tempt your wife to nag you because you can't find the initiative in yourself to do the right thing. Strap it up and be a man. Lead your home. It takes gumption to do that. Don't be so prone to laziness. Sitting on the couch, I'm tired, I worked hard all day. Uh, Yes, you did, and yes, she has roles in the home, but you must not be lazy. You are the initiator, not the receiver. Thirdly, or fourthly, I guess, this is one that I stole from Doug Wilson. All credit goes to him on this. Block-headedness. Block-headedness. I think this is very clear. Anyways, in our culture, it's mocked in a wrongful way. I'm hopefully going to stir you up. But the Bible commands husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, according to knowledge. This means that you must be intelligent when it comes to your wife's responses to her feelings, to her needs. Um, If you do not understand your wife and how she feels, then it's your fault. You're in sin, not her. You need to figure out how to live with her in an intelligent way and stop being a dummy. You need to understand what makes her tick, what she thinks, how she moves, because you can't lead her any other way. If you don't know her pitfalls, you, you can't help her out. If you don't know what she's prone to or how she feels, then you're going to repeat the same silly mistakes because you haven't used your brain. Live with her intelligently. Heavy-handedness. Now, this one is, is serious, of course, because Jesus himself is... You know, I think servant leadership has been mis- misused. That's a, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> phrase. Um, again, Doug Wilson, I'm indebted to a lot of his work on, on this front, but he says, well, we should be, ser- we, we are servant lords. So we have a servant lordship. Um, there is a, a focus, uh, it needs to be a refocus on being the leader in your home. But as you think of leaders, Christ strikes this beautiful balance where Jesus doesn't bark or snap or scream. He firmly exhorts his bride with his authority. He doesn't slap her around to get her in line or domineer her. He is the one who actually takes off his, uh, he takes off his outer garment and wraps himself with a towel and, and serves her. And at the same time, That is the same thing that makes him uh, win the heart of his bride such that she wants to listen to him. If you are tended, if you tend to apply strong force, so you can be passive on the one hand, but on the other hand, if you're trying to apply strong force in a regular way, it's because you failed in all the other steps of headship there is. You got to go back to square one and start again. Headship should be readily received by one who is sacrificially loving of his wife and who loves her incarnationally. Your authority is not a burden to her then. It is only a burden because of her own sin. That's where it should be. Uh, Just as our own sin prevents us from leading well or being a good head. Let's see how much time we have here. That's all that I'm going to do today on that. But what I want to do is make one more application in terms of the Lord's Supper since we're observing today. Um, uh, as, as usual, I want to read 1 Corinthians 11 and connect it with an element that's come out during the sermon. Um, 11, 1 Corinthians 11.23 reads, For I received from the Lord that is Jesus, what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took of the cup after the supper saying, this cup, listen to these words, is the new covenant in my blood. 
wasn't his blood. <laughs> and it's not quite the new covenant. It's symbolic of that. He's reconstituting the Passover meal. But he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The elements that we partake in are symbols of the new covenant, very much like the sign of a wedding ring. It is a symbol that I am in a covenant with my spouse. The same way, every time we take it, there's an active proclamation that this covenant is mine. I am believing in Christ for the forgiveness that is in him, in his shed blood and his broken body. And this ongoing ritual actually further imparts graces of the new covenant today. It actually gives to us just the same way that the preach word does. The preach word, if it blessed you or convicted you or anything today in relation to the the preaching of the word or the reading of scripture... This in the same manner, just as a husband's words to his wife, impart grace here and now. It actually is part of our transformation on a weekly basis. And these elements, the last thing that I'll say, are, uh, though they're symbolic for us, just as marriage is symbolic, as in the husband displaying Christ and the bride displaying the church and this gospel union that is made, as, as much as it points beyond us, so too do the elements. We receive grace from them because Christ is alive. We receive grace because Christ's forgiveness is secured to us and is meted out, as it were, uh, every time we drink and every time we chew. It is imparted to us because they point to the reality that Jesus has come. He has lived a righteous life. He has died on behalf of God's people. He has secured forgiveness and their new life through his resurrection. And because of that, we eat and drink in faith and receive grace in the moment. So... Now, I call the men up to join me, and then we will um, 